As we get started this morning, I want to kind of give you a, a heads up of what's happening in the, the coming weeks. After we finish our passage this morning, we're going to press pause on our study of Hebrews, and we will return to it in the fall. Because over the summer, we're going to start a new series looking at powerful prayers in the Bible, which I'm really looking forward to. I know it's going to be great, but I'm also looking forward to getting back into Hebrews in the fall as well. So just rest assured, it's all going to be good, and um, I just wanted you to kind of know where we're headed. Um, But for now, I want us to kind of set our minds on God's truth for us today as we continue to examine this understanding of the writer of Hebrews when he's trying to help us see the supremacy of Jesus Christ, how he's exalting the person of Christ, the, the Son of God, the promised Messiah sent to bring redemption to the world, how he's exalting the work of Christ, having laid down his life for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. Now he's helping us see the love of Christ who understands our weaknesses and because of that can extend to us mercy and grace in our time of need. As Brian talked about last week, Jesus makes all things new. And he does that by changing us from the inside out. I want you to think of it like a heart transplant where he takes that heart of stone is what the Bible says. And it, it's describing a heart that is hardened by the curse of sin, which has affected every single one of us. And it says when we put our faith in Christ, he takes that heart of stone and takes it and replaces it with a heart of flesh, a heart that is soft and, and sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit. Jonathan Edwards, who is somebody I really appreciate a number of his Thoughts And one of the things he says when he's describing this inside-out change, he says, the sovereign softening of a hard heart that cannot soften itself. He goes on and he says, the new birth does not simply change us by giving us a new power to do the same things we've always wanted to do. Instead, it changes us by getting down underneath, even to the level of our desires, and actually changing what we want. Jesus describes this same inside-out change when he says, look, it doesn't matter how much you wash the outside of the cup if inside is filled with corruption. And as we hear these thoughts, all of this is is a good reminder to us because as we think about what Amy said in her testimony last week, we know that Christians are not immune to showing up on a Sunday morning looking like everything's good on the outside. When in fact, on the inside, there's hurt and pain and brokenness that we try to hide. And so as we look at our passage this morning, I want you to pay particular attention to where that change takes place, that redemptive work of God. And I want you to ask yourself as you see those things, is this where I see the change in me? Make what we talk through together very personal to your own life. And I don't want you to look at it because there's, there's an idea that there's somehow absence of sin in your life. We know that's not true, but what I'm hopeful for is that you'll see that in the life of those who have chosen to follow Christ, there is a hatred of sin in your life. Because there's new desires that lead to 
a new direction in life. Brian said it last week. He says, we have new hearts. We have new minds. We have new lives, all made possible because of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so I want us to think about what it means to be changed from the inside out. So before that we look at our passage, let's go to the Lord together. Father, as we come to you, we do with grateful hearts, knowing that there are some magnificent promises that you have made to us about who we are when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes these can become familiar to us and they can lose the significance of what you're saying. Sometimes they're foreign to us. We've never even heard it before. We're not even sure what it means. But in either case, Lord, would you work in our hearts and our minds through the power of your spirit and the truth of your word to help us see what it means to be changed from the inside out, to be transformed into something completely new. Would you make that clear no matter where we're coming from this morning and comfort our hearts with that truth? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Good morning, Thomas. Good to see you. I love these, these weekends like this because I see people I hadn't seen in, in years, and I love it. It's good. Welcome home. So uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. says, not even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary, now even, sorry, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table of the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a jar of holding manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim, the glory of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But all of these things we cannot speak of in detail. So what we're doing here in chapter 9 is he's just continuing the thought of what we looked at last week in chapter 8. And he's highlighting the importance of the new covenant by comparing it to the limitations of the old covenant. In these verses, he's, spoke, he's speaking specifically of the worship that takes place in the tabernacle. Worship, as we see in our passage, that was carried out according to divine regulation. And this is important because it wasn't based on what man wanted it to be, which was the common practice in pagan worship of that day. They made up the rules according to whatever selfish desire they wanted to fulfill. But that's not what's happening here in the tabernacle. What's happening is there are detailed instructions divinely ordained by God. You see, for Israel, the tabernacle was the place where God's glory dwelled. It's where heaven and earth intersected, allowing God's people to draw near to God's presence. And that was God's heart all along. We see that in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. He says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, 
So, so this is a replica of something that actually exists. And it says, in all of its furniture, you shall make it according to these instructions. So, so God reveals these details to Moses, all of which were filled with meaning, so much so that he says there at the end of verse 5, there are way too many details for us to cover at this time. So let me just get to the basics. He tells us about how the tabernacle is is a sanctuary, and it's important to understand that this was a mobile sanctuary, okay? They were traveling as a people all throughout the wilderness, and so every time they moved from one place to another, they, they packed up all the furnishings of the tabernacle, and they went to a new place, and then they set everything up for, for worship in that new place that they would live. It provided them a place of worship no matter where they might travel. The tabernacle, as we see itself, was divided into two specific rooms. The first room is called the holy place. As you entered through that outer veil, you walked into a room known as the holy place. And in this room, you would find a golden lampstand. It had seven branches, and each one of those branches was shaped like the branch of an almond tree. Once lit, we know that the the lampstand would burn perpetually. In other words, the light of that lampstand would never go out as long as the tabernacle was standing. Across from the tabernacle was a table that had 12 loaves of bread, and those loaves each represent one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so God's light symbolically shines upon God's people within this room. Now, as you can see from the picture, the altar of incense was located in the first room, which is a little confusing because when you look at our passage, it tells us that that altar was in the second room known as the Holy of Holies. And I think this has to do with the fact that the author's primarily looking at a specific day known as the Day of Atonement. And it was on that day, in fact, it was the only day that the high priest could enter in to this most holy place. On that day, the altar of the incense, or the incense from that altar was taken into the Holy of Holies, and it was an integral part of the worship of that day, which is why I think the author places it inside this second veil, the Holy of Holies. Inside that Holy of Holies, we know is what's called the Ark of the Covenant. This was like a box that was covered literally in gold. Inside the box was a jar of manna from heaven. You remember that was what God used to supply the Israelite people with food when there literally was none to be obtained where they lived. And so miraculously, this manna fell from heaven and fed God's people. But you remember that he gave them specific instructions that they could only take what they needed for that day and not store any to the next day because what would happen if they did? It rotted, it spoiled. But this manna being stored in the Ark of the Covenant never spoiled. It was perpetually preserved. In that Ark, you also have Aaron's staff, which technically is a dead stick of wood, okay? You've been hiking before, you've picked up a, a, a stick of wood and it It's your staff, right? That's what Aaron had, but this staff was different because even though it was a dead stick of wood, all of a sudden, it sprout buds from a tree. 
And even more miraculous than that is the buds were preserved. They, they never died. They maintained their living status. Along with that, it says that you have the, the Ten Commandments, all of these things inside the Ark of the Covenant, and all of them representing God's faithful presence among his people, his gracious guidance, his miraculous provision. Finally, we see that the, the lid of that ark was covered with these angelic cherubim. Their wings were stretched to overshadow the mercy seat, the place where the blood of the atoning sacrifice was placed, pointing to the shedding of blood that was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. So, so the author highlights these basic details of things that would have been very well known to the Israelites who practice this worship all throughout their time in the wilderness. But, but I don't want us to get lost in the details and lose sight of the main point. And it is this. Israel was known, just like you and I, to grumble and complain against God. They were plagued by the curse of sin, just like us. And yet... God took the initiative to draw near. Instead of hiding his holiness from their depravity, the tabernacle shows us that, that God mercifully reveals that holiness to his people. He, he took the initiative to draw near to those who were far, far from him. But only in accordance to some very detailed instruction all of which pointed to a future provision. Now, we don't have time to get into this, but a study of the tabernacle is fascinating, okay? If you look at the book of Leviticus, one of the things that you'll find as you look at the construction and all the details of that tabernacle is that so much of it, down to the very detail, was patterned with garden imagery pointing back to the Garden of Eden. Why is that? That's because the garden is the place of God's original design where all creation flourished in his presence. You remember, that's where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening right there in the garden created for them. So all of this is pointing to the fact that God desires to restore his original design where humanity flourishes in his presence. And so the message is clear. God is going to make a way for that to happen. And the, the tabernacle points to what ultimately must take place. And so if you look closely, and I hope you do, you're going to see the gospel interwoven into the details of the tabernacle. So let's see how that unfolds. Look at verse 6, if you would. It says in verse 6, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. Remember, that's the holy place. It says in verse 7, but in the second, only the high priest, that's the holy of holies, only the high priest enters once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. 
the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. According, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifice are, are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in his conscience. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So in this section, we move from a description of the furniture inside the tabernacle to the function of the priests in that same place. The the author does this and presents it in a way that highlights two limitations of the tabernacle worship. First is that the tabernacle only provided for limited access. And then secondly, it only had limited effectiveness. And so if you read these passages, it's almost like the author's inviting you into a tour. And he says, come, let me show you what this was like. And he enters into that first place called the holy place. And in essence, he's telling us this is where the primary priestly function took place. This is where most of the day-to-day activity would have occurred. And it was a privilege for a priest to fulfill that responsibility. We know that because of the New Testament when it talks about Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who was a priest. And when it introduces him, it says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 8. It says, now it happened while he, Zacharias, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot, there's the privilege, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So Zechariah is is fulfilling the responsibilities that the author is describing there in verse 6, in the holy place, keeping the lampstands perpetually burning, exchanging the bread so that it always remains fresh and, and always making sure there's incense that's burning continually, symbolizing the prayers and petitions being lifted to a holy and righteous God. But then, in verse 7, we literally get a peek behind the curtain. We, we draw in beyond that second veil into the holy of holies. A place that the author reminds us is where the high priest is only able to access in only one time a year. And when he does, he does not casually walk into that place. There is an elaborate process of purification. We know from what we see in Scripture, the high priest would sacrifice a bull in order to make atonement for his own sins, but not only his own, but the, his household as well. We know that there was a ram that was offered as a burnt offering, along with two goats, one which was sacrificed as a sin offering, the other designated with what was called a scapegoat. You always wonder where that phrase came from? It came from right here in Scripture. Because that scapegoat, he would place his hands on that goat, representing all the sins of the people placed upon that goat that was then carried off into the wilderness, far from their community. The the blood of that bull and that goat that was sacrificed was then taken into the, the Holy of Holies, and it was placed upon that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant as an atonement for sin. Well, more specifically, as we see in verse 7, 
the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Did you catch that? Committed in ignorance. There's a qualifier here. And the reason is because the, the sacrifice did not cover the guilt of willful rebellion. Numbers chapter 15 verse 30 says this. It says, but the person who does anything defiantly, okay, that's willful rebellion, whether he's a native or an alien, so whether he's Jewish or he's a foreigner, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off, and his guilt will be on him, not on that goat, not even on that altar. That guilt will be on him which tells us that the sacrificial system was not a magic formula to forgive sin. It was always and forever will be based on humble repentance and a reliance on God's mercy and grace. We see that very clearly in Psalm 51. After David, having been confronted of his willful rebellion, having committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now listen closely to the words that he speaks beginning in verse 1. Look at what he says. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. I want you to notice right up front, he's not making any claim to anything that he's done to earn God's favor. He's saying, look, the only way this is going to be removed is by your mercy and grace for you to blot out my sin according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. My guilt is on me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So God, you are righteous and you are justified as you speak and blameless when you judge. You see, David understood the guilt of his sin. He understood the judgment that he deserved. There was no sacrifice that could take away the guilt of his sin. In fact, he says that in verse 16. He says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. If that was the secret sauce here, if that was the solution, then I would do it. But he says, you are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, here they are, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite or repentant heart, O God, you will not despise. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that the Old Testament sacrifices could not cleanse a guilty conscience it couldn't they had limited effectiveness it was a, a ritual for external cleansing temporarily protecting a person from God's righteous judgment against the guilt of their sin which could not be removed the tabernacle pointed to a day when God would finally deal with the sins of humanity it revealed the, the cost that would be required for forgiveness through the shedding of blood, but not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
he unfolds that in the following verses. Look at verse 11. He says, oh, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That the author is trying to help us see that everything changes with Jesus. He identifies his, him as the Christ. He's the promised Messiah. He's the solution that God had said would one day come. He's the perfect high priest who entered into the perfect tabernacle. Because it's important to understand here that the, the one that was built in the wilderness was built off of a pattern. Hey, it was a replica of the real thing. Kind of like if you were to go to Italy, you might buy one of those little uh, Eiffel Towers, right? They're pretty cool looking, but, but they pale in comparison to the real thing. It's the same idea here. The tabernacle was a man-made replica of a heavenly reality, and it paled in comparison to the real thing. So when Jesus came, he didn't walk into the holy of holies in the tabernacle. He walked into the very throne room of God. And not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And Here's another important reality. It, it wasn't a sacrifice that was going to have to be repeated like it was in the Old Testament. Year after year after year. In fact, there's some incredible words here. Three powerful words that I don't want you to miss when he says, this was a sacrifice made once for all. Let's say that together. Once for all. Those are powerful, powerful words. Built within that statement is the security of your salvation for all eternity. Once for all. By God's righteous judgment, it was satisfied when Jesus took the punishment for our sins on the cross. And through his resurrection, we obtained eternal redemption. What this is telling us is that what Jesus did is not a temporary fix. It is a permanent solution. He didn't just clean the outside of the cup. He changed you from the inside out, reconciling our relationship with God by removing the guilt of our sin, which could not be removed any other way. And in doing so, it eliminated all the barriers. So as the scripture tells us, we can enter into the throne of grace with confidence. That like Jesus, we can walk right into the very throne room of God. Now, have you stopped to think about that? Because of what Christ has done on our behalf, we have the privilege of coming before our creator God 
entering to the very holy presence of God. And one day we'll see him face to face. That's why the Bible says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says that because the guilt of our sin has been removed. We have been changed from the inside out. We have new hearts. We have new minds. We have new lives. All because of the blood of the new covenant. And all made possible because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth. Woven into the familiar design of the tabernacle. Here we see how Jesus made a way to restore the beauty of God's original design, drawing near to us so that we can draw near to him. In fact, in John chapter 1, when it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, you know what that word is in the original language? Tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Restoring the life-giving relationship that we were created for. Transforming our lives from the inside out. So here's what's important. I want us to think about how this applies to us. We're going to make this personal, okay? So I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I see this change in me? Is what we just talked about. Is what, what's being described here, does that describe you? Does that describe what's happening in your life? Am I living according to my new creation identity in Christ? And so to help answer that question, I want to look at some of the evidences that we would see in our life when that's true. And I want to consider those with a series of questions. The first one is this. Do I have a growing hatred for sin? Do I have a growing hatred for of sin. Because here's the reality. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The scripture's clear about that, isn't it? And that doesn't change. Once we put our faith in Christ, you don't instantly stop sinning. We all make mistakes, right? We've all been deceived. But here's the key. How do you respond? When that happens, how do you respond? I want you to think back to Adam and Eve in the garden, okay? What do you think about how they responded in the event of their willful rebellion against God? Because when God approaches Adam and confronts him about his sin, how does he respond? She, yeah, she did it. The woman whom you gave me. So not only does he blame Eve, he blames God for giving Eve to him. And then he goes to Eve. And she said it was because of the snake. He lied to me. Neither one of them took responsibility for their sin. Now I want you to compare that to what we read together in Psalm 51 with David. What did he say? He says, I have sinned and I have done evil in your sight. He says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. He took responsibility. Is that what it looks like for you? Are you filled with excuses or do you fall to your knees in repentance? Do you hate the sin because of what it does to you or because of what it did to Jesus? May we never 
take our forgiveness for granted. Because we're no longer motivated by guilt. Remember, that's taken care of at the cross. We, we don't try to overcome our guilt, the, the reality of our mistakes by our good deeds. We grow in godliness through gratitude. Okay, I want you to understand that because this is antithetical to what we mainly see within the church today. More often than not, people are plagued by guilt, and they're just trying to do enough good things to outweigh the bad things. If you're doing that, you don't understand the gospel. Because your guilt was paid in full at the cross. And your growth in godliness does not come from guilt. It comes from gratitude and recognizing what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. We've been changed from the inside out. So the next question to ask is this. Do I have redeemed desires? (laughs) Do I have redeemed desires? Over time, it's a process. Do you increasingly want what God wants? Does following his will become more desirable than following and fulfilling your own desires? See, this is in connection with that first one because part of this comes from the consequence of sin. We, we learn from our mistakes, or at least we should. When we see the disaster that comes from living outside the boundaries of God's design. And over time, we, we learn to trust in God more than we trust ourselves. Relying on his spirit more than we rely on on our own strength. So it's a, it's a growing hatred of sin with an increasing desire for godliness, wanting what he wants. Which leads to this third question, because none of this is possible without this one. And the question is this, am I walking by the Spirit? Am I walking by the Spirit? Galatians 5.16 is very clear. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of your flesh. It doesn't say, just learn to overcome your sin struggles by by willpower. You can do it. No, you can't. This is not something that is accomplished by, by somehow doing enough good or avoiding enough bad to somehow remove the guilt of our sin. We grow in godliness through surrender. Living out of our new creation identity in Christ. So that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me. And who gave himself for me. It's a response of gratitude because my guilt has been covered. And now I walk in grace. See, I no longer have to work hard to appear righteous. I have been made righteous in Christ. And I rely on his spirit to live according to this new creation identity in Christ. Remember, we've been changed from the inside out. New hearts, new minds, new lives. 
So the goal, and don't miss this, the goal is not to become somebody we're not. The goal is to live out of who we are in Christ. Increasingly becoming everything Jesus recreated us to be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the powerful truth of your word. Father, thank you for the intention with which you did every detail of your creation. From the things that you made in nature that we look around that all speak of your glory and your goodness. To even the details of the tabernacle. Such clear instruction that point to a future provision. And Lord, thank you for making that known so clearly through the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his forgiveness, his grace, his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for covering our guilt and for clothing us with your righteousness. It's in that truth that we stand. I pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together. And it's just good news, right? Okay, so I really hope we get this. I pray that we do. I think it's a game changer when we can realize that we're not trying to become something that we're not. We're trying to live out of who we are. And one of the ways that I think we can see this difference in our lives is when we do fall in the sin, if we respond to that by saying, I just need to try harder, then we don't get it. Because that's not the answer. Instead, when we fall into sin, we claim the truth and, and, and say to ourselves, that's not who I am. I want to live out of my new identity in Christ. That's who I am. If we can take that subtle shift into how we are living our lives, I think it, it's a game changer. Because then our obedience is motivated by our gratitude not in a desire to do good works to cover our guilt because that's been done there's only one good work and it was once for all and that guilt is done so may we be motivated by gratitude and not by guilt not trying to become something that we're not but living out of who we are in Christ amen let's do that together have a great day